turn together in the Word of God to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We'll be focusing on verse 9, but we'll read all of the Beatitudes together as we welcome visitors here with us today as well as online. Hear now the Word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it today to us by his Holy Spirit. Imagine the country that you once cherished was divided, broken, overrun by corrupt leadership, those who call evil good and good evil, imperiled by vast international powers, and seemingly on the brink of collapse. The political and cultural conditions in Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C. were exactly that. The days were dark. Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, didn't like each other. As brothers, they had fighting and civil war, basically, among them. And as they went after each other, they eventually were taken over by other nations, Syria, Assyria, Babylon, all those things throughout those centuries. Yet in the midst of the most dark days, Isaiah gave a prophecy of a prince of peace who would come and truly bring a kingdom that is marked by the grace and power and gospel of God. In the book of Matthew, we've seen who that king is, Christ We've seen in the Beatitudes and the chapters before us that he has brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. It has been inaugurated and yet not yet consummated. And today we look at how a world that is at war, at war with God, at war with one another, is reconciled by faith, God's children are, to Jesus and to each other. And that this calling to be peacemakers is grounded in the gospel and it is a family trait of God's people. Those who are children of God reflect their father and that's what we see today 
in this seventh beatitude, as one has led to another, to another, like a series of rings in your gymnastics class, kids, so today we come to number seven. First, we want to look at the opposite of peace. There's a word in the Old Testament for peace called shalom. Kids, you maybe have heard that. It's not just the absence of trouble, but all that makes for a complete whole life. Everything properly related together. Health, well-being. This shalom was present in the Garden of Eden before Adam fell. Adam had a perfect fellowship with his father, and so did Eve. Adam and Eve had perfect shalom. And Adam was at peace with the world around him. But Satan, who is the first peace breaker, enters the garden. And what happens is not only Adam sins as the federal head of all humanity, but that sin now spreads to all because in Adam's fall sinned we all. And now we live in a world of strife where we are at war with God and with each other where Genesis 3.15 is unfolding. There is enmity, hatred, strife between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We live in restlessness, agitation, like a sea that's all churned up. By nature, we are at enmity with God. Our world is filled with wars and rumors of wars of nations invading nations, death and destruction. The United Nations came into existence 1945 after World War II, formed as an agency for world peace. Since that time, one person has said, there has not been one single day of peace in the world. We live in a culture of outrage, of shame, the opposite of Matthew 5. And yet people want peace. If you talk to a non-believer, and if you're a non-believer here today or watching, we're glad you're here. People are looking for peace, and they think peace is when I'm healthy, when I'm wealthy, when I have good food and drink, when my job's going well, when my family and friends are well, when everything is well. And while those things are good things, we, we pray for health and good relationships, that's not true peace in a fallen world because none of those things can last. So when those things go or disappear, people turn to other things to try to deal with their pain and lack of peace. Escapism. It could be a number of different things. Too much alcohol, too much food, too much drink, mindless, endless scrolling of the phone or social media, binge watching, could be a number of things to try to deal with that problem of the lack of peace. We live in a world that promotes false peace. That's the world of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Both of those prophets in Israel said, there's people around who are going to tell you peace, peace, when there is no peace. The wall is cracked in the basement. You've got an opening coming from the outside down, and you're going to kind of put silly putty over it, kids. And you're going to think, that's going to stop the torrential downpour of spring rains, and my basement won't flood. That's what was going on in Ezekiel's day. That's kind of the image he used. When the rain comes, you'll see things for how they really are. 
When Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not talking about appeasement. Meaning, getting along. Peace at all costs. Appeasement is not peace. It just puts off the conflict. World War II, leading up to that war, Neville Chamberlain goes and makes a deal with Hitler for peace after Hitler had already invaded Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain comes to England and he says, peace in our time. We've achieved peace with honor. To which Winston Churchill replies, you were given a choice between war and dishonor. You have chosen dishonor and you will have war. Peacemaking is not peace faking. Acting as if things are okay when they're not. This is not a false piece of selfishness. I just don't want the trouble. This is not a false piece of cowardice. I'm afraid of the trouble. This is not a tolerance that you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, it doesn't matter. Let's just have peace. This is not peace without the truth of God's word. This is not a personality type. We've said that throughout the Beatitudes. It's not like, okay, if a laid-back person is cool with it, then they're peaceful. That's not this at all. This is not a passive quality. It's not something that people possess when they mind their own business. It's not a virtue found in trying to avoid conflict. It's not peace-faking. This is also not peace-breaking. Ken Sandy talks about this. A peacemaker is not a jerk. What causes so many problems in our relationships? Self-love and pride. When the wind of pride is blowing through our hearts, it causes divisions of earthquakes, like the San Andreas Fault, in all of our relationships. Proverbs says there are six things God hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. The seventh is one who sows discord among brothers. Paul picks up on this in Titus 3. Warn the divisive man once, then twice, then what? Have nothing to do with him. Conflict follows some people around because it lives in them. So it spills out of them whenever they talk to someone. If you hang out with a quarrelsome, divisive person, their contentiousness will rub off on you and spread like a cancer. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The opposite would be what, children? Cursed are the peacebreakers, for they belong to the devil. Heretics destroy the truth of the church by error, Schismatics destroy the peace of the church by division. Paul says, mark those who cause divisions and avoid them. If someone is a troublemaker who spreads rumors and gossip, who is always fomenting discontent, finds joy in scandal, is always critical, always fault-finding, never satisfied, ready to speak against this and that at all times, to slander brothers and sisters in Christ, that person is not giving evidence that they're a child of God. 
Secondly, gospel peace. The history of God's people is a history of slavery, oppression, and war. Exodus, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Canaan, and the Philistines all over the place. The first century, the Romans themselves were ruling and they expected, the Jewish people did, a Messiah to come who would finally deal with all of this. We want a king who will throw away the Romans and establish our kingdom here. And Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And as you read your Old Testament, you see what type of king was prophesied would come. Isaiah tells us, a prince of peace, a ruler who is a king and brings a kingdom that itself is proclaiming good news, Isaiah 52. Good tidings, peace and salvation, saying your God reigns. Do you see the combination there? A king, peace, salvation, and reigning. All of that is combined. Jesus is that prince of peace. God the Father is a God of peace. The Spirit is the Spirit who brings and works peace. The heart of the gospel is a message of peace. Jesus is the only mediator between God and sinful men. He comes to mediate the estrangement between us and our sin and a holy God to be our peacemaker. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. How would he do it? You read the New Testament. Peter says that in his active obedience, in his sufferings, he's fulfilling all righteousness. He's reviled, but he does not revile in return. He's mocked, but he does not return mockery. He then goes as one who's not clutching at his rights, but humbling himself to death on a cross, dying as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And Paul says in Colossians, he made peace that we now, through the blood of his cross, might be reconciled to a holy God. God doesn't just forgive sins. Justice must be done, blood shed, a substitute given, propitiation made, wrath, sacrifice, appeased, and the cost is enormous. That's the gospel of Jesus. God pursues his children to bring peace through the blood of the cross. Dear Christian, by grace through faith in Jesus, you now have peace with God, Paul says. If someone's not a believer, they're not neutral. There's no spiritual Switzerland, as someone said. If someone is not at peace with God through faith in Christ, then they are what? In the kingdom of darkness. But Romans 5 says we have a saving relationship with the God of the universe. Because we have peace with God, now we can understand the peace of God that is in our hearts. There's a difference, isn't there? You can't have the peace of God unless you have peace with God through faith in Jesus. And we read about the peace of God in Philippians, that it surpasses all understanding. It guards our hearts and our minds. Think about an army, children. 
that's protecting a city from violent, destroying armies. That's the picture of guarding. Our hearts and our minds are being guarded. And we need to be guarded because what threatens to destroy the peace of God in our lives? We could come up with a lot of things. Insecurities and worries. Discontentment. Dissatisfaction with life. Restlessness. Envy. The sins that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. And also, loved ones, trying to read someone's mind. When we guess someone's motives, that's a horrible way to try to live in peace. It rips apart your peace. Because what we do then, we think they're thinking this, we think this is why they did that, and we come up with the often most negative, self-damaging guesses. The peace of God in Christ will guard you from that. It doesn't numb you to the pain of life. It doesn't say everything's fine when it's not fine. These pains, these stresses, these sicknesses, these griefs, these sorrows are real. In the world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But I give you my peace. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Peace is not just the absence of hostility. It's the existence of well-being, completeness, wholeness. It is well with my soul. It is covenantal blessings that we have by faith in Jesus. We experience this in a way that surpasses all understanding. Paul is in prison. He writes that in Philippians. And he's experiencing the peace of God in his heart. Your circumstances are challenging. Everything around you is saying, despair, hopeless. In Christ, you have a shalom, a peace that passes all understanding as you're united by faith to him. Often, though, we don't live this way. We live like Christiana, Pilgrim's Progress 2. Do you remember? She's on her journey. She's now a believer, kids, just like her husband. She comes to interpreter's house, And he shows her a picture of a man holding a rake in his hand. And he's looking for little stones and sticks, looking down. Above his head is a magnificent crown of gold. The illustration is this. We have a crown of gold above our heads, the treasures of God's grace. But our gaze is fixed down at the world. And as long as we're looking down at the world, looking for our satisfaction here, we will not have the peace of God in our hearts. How do we help each other? We urge each other to look to the Lord. The difference between the gospel and all the self-help stuff that's out there is self-help says look within. The gospel says look to Christ. We help each other as a church in this by praying for one another. When you see someone's head drooping, they're struggling, going alongside, listening to them, taking them out for coffee, encouraging them, reminding them of God, God's wisdom, God's sovereign power, God's goodness, by bearing their burden with them, by bringing the word of God to them, by supporting them in this great hour of trial. 
by praying for them and with them, and by living as peacemakers among them. Third, what does it look like to live this way? Jesus gave himself for you that you might have peace with God, have peace within, and have peace with one another. We all have relationships that are strained. Friends, family, church family, neighbors. David himself knew this. Psalm 55, he talks about Absalom, the betrayal of a son. Maybe you've had that betrayal in your marriage, in your business relationships, among friendships. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. He's saying, by the grace that I pour out in your heart, your heart is turned from a rage-filled, demanding my rights, venting my anger heart, to by the Spirit, peaceful and gracious to one another. James 3, this is wisdom. It's peaceable. It's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Dear Christian, a peacemaker is one who actively pursues peace. In this, we resemble Jesus. These are the family traits of the Christian. A peacemaker labors for peace in the lives of others, helping them to experience all that God has for them. One aspect to this is someone who steps in as a mediator. So two people can't get along. They're going at each other. It's like a fencing match. One is trying to poke the other, and the other's fighting back. And a peacemaker, in that sense, will stand in between. This happens in good, proper, biblical Presbyterian church government. It's messy, it's imperfect, but it's what God calls us to. And some elders and pastors in our denomination have been doing just this in a very tense situation in one of our churches, where they've been trying to bring parties who are estranged to reconcile. And they've been right in the middle, and there's crossfire, and there's pain, and there's really significant distress. But we're accountable to each other as churches. That's an important thing for you to hear as a member and as a visitor, that we are a part of a denomination where brothers, as elders and pastors, are accountable to each other, our churches are to each other, and to you and to Christ. Do you remember Paul and Philippians? Euodia and Syntyche are going at it. We're not sure what the issue is. Paul is trying to bring about peace. Abraham does the same thing in his relationship with his nephew Lot. Every earthly family needs to be a family of peacemakers. So, moms and dads and kids, peace is the referee that blows a whistle on any action that is out of line. Friction in the home, conflict, fathers, mothers, siblings, you're all to be peacemakers. Every church family is a family of peacemakers. When we join, we are seeking things that make for unity, purity, and peace. 
So how goes it with us? How about in your family? How are you living together as a family in peace? How about the church family? How are we living together? Ask yourself some of these questions. Here's how one writer puts it. In searching our hearts, am I a fighter and do I thrive on conflict? Or am I passively avoiding conflict at all costs? Do I think I have to choose between truth and love? Do I think it's godly to fight, to stand up for my convictions? And I'm zealous for that, but it's never motivated by love. Am I a peace faker? Or do I tend to peace breaking? Or do I kind of just like to be in the middle, but not a peacemaker, active? Or do I actively seek by the gospel of God to bring reconciliation where God only can bring it and use me, I pray God, to bring that about? What does this peacemaking look like in practice? I love Derek Thomas. He quotes from a story of someone who's dead. I read recently, someone said, I'm just going to quote from dead writers. That way they won't disappoint me. This guy lived in the 1800s. Kids, he was a coal miner. He was also a part-time boxer. His name was Richard Weaver. He was baptized by Charles Spurgeon. Weaver himself, when he was converted to Christ, lived with other miners who provoked him. Have you ever been provoked by someone, kids? This morning? Have you ever provoked (laughs) this morning? One of the miners tried to take his coal wagon, but this Richard Weaver guy was a part-time boxer. He was strong. The guy couldn't get it away from him. The guy said, if I have a good mind, Richard, I'm going to smack you on the face. Well, if it will do you good, do it, he said. And the man did. He struck him on the face, one, two, three, four, five, six times. But then Weaver turned his cheek, and the man turned away, and he swore at him. Richard Weaver said, the Lord forgive you, for I do, and the Lord save you. That was a Saturday. Richard asked his wife how he looked. His wife said, there's something wrong with your face, Richard. He said, well, I was fighting and I thrashed a man. Of course he didn't. Monday came, he said, and I saw the man again. His name was Tom. On Monday, the man who had slapped him over and over burst into tears. He said, will you forgive me? Yes, Richard said, I forgive you. And may God forgive you. Ask God to forgive you. By the grace of God, this man named Tom was converted. Now, not many of us are in coal mines or boxing, but how does the call to peacemaking apply to your life? Satan wants to stir up quarrels and disagreements and enmities between people. He especially, Calvin says, wants to do it between people and pastor, people and elders. That's where he is doing his work. He wants people to be in unresolved, unreconciled, undealt with conflict all the time, especially in the church. Where there's a lack of peace in the church, the gospel will not flourish. Division eats as a worm, destroying the peaceable fruit 
of righteousness. Kids, think about a worm eating your apple that's in the back of your refrigerator. It's just destroying it. In the church of Corinth, they divided into parties. Some said, I'm for Paul. Others, I'm for Apollos. But very few were for Christ. Loved ones, we are to seek peace and pursue it. This is one of the primary callings that I have as a pastor and your elders have as elders in the church to seek peace. Thessalonians says, be at peace with everyone. Make every effort, Ephesians, to live in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Conflict happens. We don't want to be peace fakers. Conflict happens when our desires war within us and we don't get what we want. Kids, it happens with your brother and sister over the toy car. It happens in businesses, families, churches, neighborhoods. Someone's wants and desires and expectations are colliding with someone else. And the world says, don't forgive, retaliate. Put up a blockade, say, I'm done with you. I'm not going to reconcile. That's how the world responds. But by the gospel, a peacemaker is characterized by honesty. If there's a problem, he or she admits it. They speak the truth in love. They don't demand perfection from others. They're humble. There's no prideful ego going on. There's love. The peacemaker does not let sleeping dogs lie. Not about maintaining the status quo. He desires peace. He does what he can and she does what she can to produce it. So that means not avoiding conflict, engaging conflict, not to inflame it, but to resolve it. Paul, going to Peter, the issue is related to the gospel, Peter. You are denying it through your behavior, Galatians. Paul confronts him in love. At the same time, a peacemaker knows that wisdom says, don't meddle in stuff you shouldn't be dealing with. Do you remember the Proverbs? Kids, if you meddle in stuff that's not your stuff, you're like the guy that grabs the dog by the ears and provokes it. The dog's going to bite. You shouldn't be dealing with that. So that's one category. Wisdom says, don't meddle. But wisdom says, when the dog is barking, move toward it. In your relationships, in the particular conflicts that you have, with the goal of reconciliation. Deal with it early, the Proverbs say. Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out a little water. Quit before the quarrel starts. The first trickle of water, it might be a harsh word. It might be a moment of distrust. It might not seem like much at the time. But the end is in the beginning. And those involved know that if they could go back and do it all over again, the outcome could be different. Don't let small resentments take root. If they do, they will grow. This takes great courage. If you're eight years old, kids, this has to do with who you live with and share a room with. Be at peace is not just don't fight. It's strive for peace in our marriages as agents in our families of peace. I will not gossip. I will forgive. I will forbear. The church of Jesus 
should be a place where the world sees harmony in action in the gospel. Some of you might need to go this week to another person who's a family member, a church member, a neighbor, a friend, and reconcile. Some of you maybe have been unreconciled for years or decades. If you are not at peace with someone in your life, God's will is to pursue it. If you have an issue with me, unresolved conflict, if you heard me say something in a sermon or a conversation or a Sunday school session and you don't like it or you wonder about it, please come to me. Please don't dwell on it. Please don't talk to other people about it. Come. Meet the one that you are alienated from and pray for reconciliation. As recipients of grace, we are called to respond graciously to those in the covenant community who offend us. Ken Sandy, the peacemaker. Sometimes we don't look at conflict in a positive light. But as Christians, every time we experience conflict, it's an opportunity for the gospel to say to that person, Christ redeemed me, he bought me, he is my righteousness, death to my pride, I want to do what's right, I want to confess my sin, I want to go in humility to reconcile. Sandy talks about four G's. So you've got conflict. What does this look like? First, glorify God. What's your goal in the relationship that has a history where there's unreconciled stuff? Is it to win? Or is it to glorify God? The peacemaker is not focused on themselves. They're not self-defensive. They're not thin-skinned and take offense at all this stuff and defensive and all that. They don't think about themselves because they're thinking primarily of the glory of God. Second G, in peacemaking, get the log out of your own eye. Sandy says there's two kind of logs. One, have I had a critical, negative, overly sensitive attitude that has led in my life to unnecessary conflict? That's a log. God, get it out. Second, have I said actual sinful words and have I sinned in action? I'm blind to it. I don't see it. I see other people's sins by nature. I see my own self-righteousness and I'm loving it and I love to talk about it, but I don't see my sin unless by the Spirit of God, a loving friend or God by his word and spirit shows it to me. Conflicts come from where? Desires in the heart. We fight because it's something we want. We're not getting it. Third G, gently restore. When you seek to reconcile, the first thing that we should learn is not to talk. Self-expression is one of the leading idols in our culture. And we don't even realize it sometimes. I must say what I think and what I feel. Really? What would happen if we didn't? Instead of unloading, instead of letting it rip, accumulated frustrations and complaints, peacemakers practice restraint. 
And loved ones, attempts at peacemaking often fail here. If one party thinks they've got to lay out the whole history of every accumulated failure and grievance, it often ends there. What if God unloaded on us every sin, every violation of his law, every failure to love God and our neighbor? What if he just dumped it on you? Oh, God, have mercy. For the sake of Christ, he doesn't. He's merciful. James says, be slow to speak. When something is said and we're tempted to reply, don't do it. Don't repeat things when you know they're going to do harm. And loved ones, we are not a true friend when we tell our friend something unkind that was said about him by someone else. That doesn't help. A peacemaker feels like saying things, but for the sake of peace, he doesn't. And before the conflict is resolved, the peacemaker has to ask this question, should I overlook it? Because Proverbs say it's a glory to overlook minor offenses. Here's four questions. You should overlook the offense if you can answer no to these. Ken Sandy. Is the offense seriously dishonoring God? Has it permanently damaged a relationship? Is it seriously hurting other people? Is it seriously hurting the offender himself? If you pray and you think, I can't overlook it, Matthew 18, you go to that person humbly. Then you seek to bring one or two others if there's still not resolution. You go and be reconciled. That's the fourth G, go. Impersonal communication rarely leads to reconciliation. God made peace with you by coming to you. The Son of God became flesh. He spoke to his enemies face to face. He didn't rub your face in your failure. He forgave you and embraced you. Conflicts escalate when people who are wronged retaliate. The retaliation provokes a response. But the peacemaker says, what can I do to de-escalate the situation as I meet face to face with this person? A peacemaker is willing to risk pain. Because of the gospel, the peacemaker says, you know what, I want to see what I've done wrong more than what you have done wrong. That's how we lead as peacemakers. We are to bear with each other and forgive each other. Whatever grievances, forgive as the Lord forgave. One person said this, life is so short. Take a walk around a cemetery. All those tombstones, all those people buried there, they experience the grief, the turmoil that you experience, the hurt, the pain, the sin. In light of eternity, who is at fault? Take your unreconciled relationship, loved ones. Look at it in light of eternity. We're a mist. We don't want to stand before the presence of God clinging to the wrongs that were committed against us. For the sake of Jesus, let them go. And remember to be prepared for unreasonable people. When you're responding to conflict, you need to realize people may harden their hearts. They may refuse to be reconciled to you. 
Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. There's division so that those who are genuine might be seen. Sometimes people in your, your life, the church, friendships, they will disagree with you in a disagreeable manner. They'll read things into what you say or what you don't say. They'll make assumptions of your motives. They'll assume the worst and they won't want peace. No matter how much you pray for it, long for it, work at it, it'll be thrown in your face. But don't let the lack of peace be your fault. Let it be their fault. Jesus didn't have peace with everyone in his life. Pharisees, Sadducees. But don't take that and run wild with it. We should never ourselves seek conflict or be responsible for it. And loved ones, get help from God. We're a family. God's will is that we live in harmony in the gospel. This requires the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, much humility, genuine repentance, and much prayer. We should not, as vultures, prey on each other but pray for each other, Thomas Watson. Pray for peace, that we would be united in the gospel, the three forms of unity. Unity, right? Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession, Canons of Dort, the essentials of the truth of the gospel. Pray that the Spirit would create that unity in Christ and in the gospel among us, that we would diligently maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Imagine a man, John Owen said, carrying a bunch of sticks to the fire. All these different sized branches. He binds them together, he carries them home. Some are long, some are short, some have stuff sticking there and there. So it is with the church. What a varied bunch we are. How will Christ carry us home? He will tie us together with the gospel bond of peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of peace, that through the cross, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, established peace through his blood, that one day Jesus will return and establish a kingdom of peace. In the new heavens and new earth, we will enjoy eternal and everlasting peace, O God, with you and with your people. Holy Spirit, open our eyes, soften our hardened hearts, unstop our deaf ears, that we would today, by faith in Jesus, experience the peace of God that passes all understanding, that we would be a church of peacemakers for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.